0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, it's Basha here, and
2: you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. So over Christmas, we wanted to look back over some of our favourite episodes from the year. And one in particular stands out. It was so remarkable that we ended up turning it into a six-part series called London Grad. It's the story of Evgeny Lebedev's rise to prominence and it has some extraordinary details about British politics and power and influence. It was told by our reporter Paul Caruana Galizia and it's not only fascinating but an incredibly important insight into how the British establishment operates. I'll leave Paul to tell you the rest.
3: To all lords, spiritual and temporal and all other our
4: subjects whatsoever to whom these presents shall come greeting. A man with piercing eyes, a thick black beard, dressed in a crimson velvet robe, trimmed with white fur, is surrounded by the great, the good, and the ridiculously
5: rich. I, Evgeny Lord Lebedev, do solemnly, sincerely, and truly
6: declare and affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth,
5: her heirs and successors according to law.
4: Standing tall that day, in the ornate gilded chamber of the House of Lords, the man posed for a photo and uploaded it to Instagram. He captioned it, Muzik, a Russian peasant, among the noblemen. And he added emojis of a bear and a crown. The man entered the building as Mr. Evgeny Lebelev. He left as... Baron Lebedev, of Hampton in our London borough of Richmond-upon-Thames and of Siberia in the Russian Federation. This wasn't a sitcom or a satire. It was just one of those things in Britain. It was an embarrassment, really. One person's bizarre elevation, the story of Britain's craven welcome to Russian money and how easy it is for someone with a checkbook to unlock the British establishment.
2: we noted that it was a number of members of the House of Lords had business links interests to Russia, all worked directly for major Russian companies linked to the Russian state, and that these relationships, in our view, needed to be very carefully scrutinised given the potential for the Russian state to exploit them.
4: As one lord involved in official intelligence told me, peers weren't at all happy, I think you'll find, with Mr Lebedev's arrival. I'm Paul Karwana-Galizia, a reporter at Tortoise, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast. A few months ago, I set out to try and find how this could possibly have happened. The Lord of Siberia, the son of a KGB agent owning the biggest circulation newspaper in the capital, and a seat in the upper house of parliament by the age of 41. The mystery to me was as much Britain as Evgeny Lebedev. How did he do it? And I'd love to tell you that I started out thinking this investigation would be timely. But the truth is, while I was trying to get the House of Lords to release the warnings it got about Evgeny, Vladimir Putin started amassing troops on the border of Ukraine. Londongrad, the shorthand for London's eager welcome to Russian oligarchs linked to Putin, has become a big problem to Britain and Boris Johnson. Evgeny's bizarre eyes has turned into the coincidence of two embarrassments in Britain, the crumbling credibility of the House of Lords and the no-questions-asked welcome to the oligarchs. I've seen in my own country, Malta, how large flows of money can creep into a system, then, almost imperceptibly, take complete hold of it. Donations to political parties become a means to capture them, Titles and honors, tools of patronage, and newspapers, a canvas for the private over the public interest. There's a playbook there for anyone who wants to use it. Evgeny Lebedev's glittering ascent started in a different way, with a party.
3: I remember like probably doing MDMA, and uh, it was surreal because there was this kind of
4: fetishizing of the Cold War. It's May 2006. Evgeny is 26, living in London, the son of a Russian oligarch with a reputation for partying and little else. But there are plans for him. His PR agent takes him to see a man called Jody Greig, the editor of Tatler, a glossy magazine that covers Britain's high society.
3: You know, uh, Brufty and toffee and bucky, and you know, the kind of almost like a parody of English uh, upper-class life.
4: She tells Geordie that Evgeny is launching a charity with a Russian called Michael Gorbachev at Altorp House, Princess Diana's childhood home, and asks him if he would like to cover it in the magazine. Do you mean, Geordie asked her, Gorbachev, the man who changed the world? She looks blank, but Evgeny was pleased that Geordi got it. In fact, Jordi got it so much that he offered to co-host the party.
3: It was one of the greatest parties I've ever been to, and it felt like the kind of party one might throw if the world was about to end, because uh, the scale of it and the drama of it and the kind of theatre of it.
4: This is Atish Tasir, a writer whose books range from Islam and identity to his relationship with his father an assassinated governor of Punjab. Atish now lives with his husband in New York, but around the time of the party to end all parties, his life was a little different.
3: I was dating um, a girl, though I was aware that my sexuality was more complicated than that, and the girl was, you know, of a very grand English family, a minor member of the English royal family. Her name was Ella Windsor, and her parents were Prince and Princess Michael of Kent. And um, through her, I suppose, the world of uh, a kind of aristocratic social London opened up to me. And along with that, I suppose, was also uh, because London being London, there was sort of international elements, too. There were, you know, people who were not necessarily part of this very cosseted English aristocratic world where everyone's parents knew each other. But they were kind of glamorous foreigners.
4: Evgeny young wealthy and russian was one of them he came up with the team a midsummer russian fantasy and the dress code white tie the date the 10th of june 2006
3: it was one of those endless summer evenings like you know one of those days when the light just won't seem to really kind of fade at all and we drove up from London with a kind of English social figure called Nikki Haslam, drinking like rosé on the way and arrived in this extraordinary house, which I was very much aware of as being Diana's house. I feel like I want to say like there were contortionists hanging from the trees and acrobats and like a kind of Russian circus atmosphere. There was this sense of kind of, on one hand, almost a commodification of Cold War nostalgia. There was the world of like the czars, Russian circuses, like that kind of splendor. And then there was this funny feeling of almost like a millenarian atmosphere that you know that it was tonight or never you know like kind of as if the Berlin Wall had just come down or something and I walked onto the dance floor like probably in a fairly heightened state and I see (laughs) dancing in a circle Orlando Bloom, Mikhail Gorbachev and Salman Rushdie And I was like, this has got to be the most fucking surreal thing
4: I've ever seen in my life. The Russian Fantasy Party cost £2 million. The amount it raised for charity? Half a million pounds less than that. Listening to Atish describe the event, I imagine it like a scene from a Scott Fitzgerald novel. And over the years, Evgeny has certainly cultivated a Gatsby-esque image an elusive private figure. And on this night in 2006, Evgeny was very much in the background. Atish, when you look back on the party, did, did it feel like maybe a, a debut on ball is the right way to, to frame it, that it was kind of Ev- Evgeny's debut? Or was he not very present?
3: I feel he was not very present at that point. So I do remember him later, uh, uh, he had this very striking face, almost like one of the paintings of the Russian painter Ilya Repin, you know, like fairly piercing eyes. But uh, at the time when this big party happened, I don't think, I, I think I was more aware of his father than I was of him.
4: The father's name was Alexander Yevgenyevich Lebedev.
5: So let me first introduce myself. Um... I'm a former, that's been 26 years, um, officer of Soviet foreign intelligence, which is public knowledge. And um, I've been since 92 a banker. I still am, but uh, I've got the most reliable bank in the country, but with no business. Because a few years ago, the bank came under attack as a payback for my investigations regarding the Russian Fraudulent bankers, of which a few hundred are living comfortably in, 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 in London.
4: So goes his origin story. In the best tradition of Russian intelligence officers, it makes some commitment to the truth. Some of it is false, some true, much is elided. The KGB sent Alexander in 1988. the Soviet Embassy in London, on a street now known as Billionaire's Row, in the shadow of Kensington Palace. He said all he had to do was read the newspapers, for signs that capitalism was failing. But as one former MI6 officer told me, KGB officers weren't posted to London just to read the papers. Here's what Alexander really did monitor arms control negotiations, trade talks, NATO, and British politicians. It was also during this period that Alexander befriended Gorbachev. Outside the office, he drove Russia's new rich, born of Gorbachev's market reforms, around in his little Ford car. Some even stayed at his house. <inaudible> Seeing them spend money in clubs and restaurants was, he said, an eye-opener. And it rubbed off on him. So much so that he began registering businesses in the UK while still an agent in 1992. Around the same time, he came under investigation by the counterintelligence division of the FSB, the KGB's successor agency. He says, because of unfounded suspicions of an affair with the wife of a senior diplomat. Well I've been told that the businesses he opened were in violation of diplomatic rules, and that this is why he returned to Moscow, where he made his millions, and then billions. He made his first real money trading high-risk, high-yield South American and African bonds, and then bought a small, struggling bank, to what he's described as an open tender. It was 1995. A few months later, the man who'd go on to become the largest foreign investor in Russia landed in Moscow.
1: Uh, so I'm, I'm Bill Browder, the CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, and I'm also head of the Magnitsky Global Justice Campaign. Um, I come from an unusual family background. My grandfather was the general secretary of the American Communist Party. And so during my teenage rebellion, um, I decided to become a capitalist. And I had this epiphany one day that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, I'm gonna try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe.
4: Bill met Alexander through a shared interest, one of the world's largest gas companies and then most corrupt, used largely to enrich the country's feasting oligarchs. Let's take a moment. To talk about Gazprom,
1: so Gazprom was a company that traded at a ninety nine point seven percent discount to BP and Exxon per barrel of hydrocarbon reserves. The reason it traded at such a discount was because everybody assumed that every last cubic meter of gas was stolen from the company. And so, uh, what we we, we started to investigate, and we discovered that massive gas fields had been transferred off the company's balance sheets for almost no money. Gazprom should be one of the most profitable companies in the world, and effectively it's a non-profit company because all the money was being stolen by the insiders, and there's so much money being stolen. Gazprom is important. So important,
4: a director of a Gazprom subsidiary wrote a song about it.
5: Надежнее
3: Газпром.
4: Don't bother trying, you'll never find a friend surer than Gazprom. We're giving people warmth and light for office and for home, so let's drink to you, let's drink to us, let's drink to all the Russian gas. Gazprom's still the world's largest gas producer, and it's controlled by the Kremlin, which uses it to further its international interests. It's the reason Alexander Lebedev is an oligarch.
1: Alexander Lebedev, at the time was the um, owner of of a mid-sized bank called National Reserve Bank. And as far as I could tell, the main asset of the bank was a large shareholding of Gazprom. And so every year before the annual general meeting of Gazprom, we would go to him and ask him if he would vote his shares for our candidate for the board of Gazprom on the anti-corruption ticket. And uh, every year we had very sort of, I would call, engaged conversations with him and i believe that in some years he actually voted with us and some years he didn't and so we got to know him through that which was kind of interesting because most people <laughs> wouldn't want to vote with us but in that particular moment he did and so
4: he was he was on the good side
1: um well he he was certainly um flirting with the good side i mean so how did he end up owning this bank and ending yes. up with all this gas from i don't know um yeah, no. I can't imagine that, that it was through graft and hard work, but you know, maybe it was. Who knows? Maybe uh, minimum wage, uh, crafty investments. Um, but but he ended up owning a lot of Gazprom. Um, you know, th- how
4: much do you like? Are we talking
1: hundreds of millions of dollars? Um, maybe even more. Maybe oh. a billion dollars of Gazprom. Oh. The National Reserve Bank became one of Russia's biggest within
4: just two years of Alexander running it. He's denied that growth is down to his FSB links. He's suggested, instead, that it's because he's a financial Mozart. Which I find interesting, because at least three former KGB officers who were stationed in London, two when Alexander was there, occupied very senior positions at the bank. Two were chairmen. And at some point, Alexander even tried buying a statue of Felix Zarzynski, the founder of the KGB, to sit in the entrance of his ragingly successful bank. By 2006, the heir of the Russian fantasy ball at Diana's childhood home, Alexander made the Forbes billionaire's list, his estimated $3.5 billion fortune mostly tied up in Gazprom. But surviving as an oligarch requires more than enormous
1: wealth. There's no such thing as being independently wealthy in Russia. Every oligarch can be destroyed in, in a fraction of a second by an administrative decision by Vladimir Putin. They can either have their wealth taken away, their freedom taken away, or their life taken away. And so it's a very complex game to be an oligarch. I don't think it's nearly as simple as, the, as we, we sort of painted in the West. I mean, all of them are sort of try, trying different strategies to keep some wealth, they have to share some wealth, trying to stay out of jail, trying to stay ahead of, ahead of their enemies.
4: Alexander, his former employee told me, was always playing multiple chess games. He tried to walk a tightrope, loyalty to Putin on one hand and the pro-Western image as a form of protection on the other.
1: So oligarchs in Russia, people who owned banks, people who owned oil companies, people who owned other things, would buy newspapers and TV stations, um, not because they made money, but to buy them to gain political influence.
4: But one day in 2008, that tightrope snapped. Alexander's Russian tabloid reported allegations that Putin had divorced his wife and was preparing to marry a Russian gymnast and model less than half his age. The tabloid was shut down within a week. Under siege in Russia, Alexander turned to London to diversify his risk. Not long after, Alexander and Evgeny are at a table in one of London's most plush hotels, the Connaught in Mayfair. They're discussing something called Project Venus. There are two other men at the table with them. One is Jonathan Harmsworth, or Lord Rothermere, the newspaper baron. The other is Geordie Greig, close friend of Evgeny and the editor of Tatler, which had just voted Evgeny Britain's third most eligible bachelor. If you're wondering who he lost out to, it was Russell Brand and Sam Branson, Richard's son. The Evening Standard, London's paper, one Alexander used to read as a KGB officer, was losing between 10 and £20 million a year, and Lord Rothermere was looking to offload it to the Lebedevs. The negotiations were done in secret, in ups and downs, delays and bursts, over months, just as the financial crisis was ripping through the world's economy. Over 2008 alone, Gazprom's share price had collapsed by about 76 percent, and Alexander's wealth fell with it. As Bill Browder told me, being an
1: oligarch isn't just about wealth. Well, it didn't seem like a very good investment strategy. (laughs) These British newspapers were losing money hand over fist, but it also mirrored um, the strategy of oligarchs in Russia 20 years earlier. And so this looked like an interesting strategy for him to be gaining political influence here in the UK.
4: Alexander sold a jet, sold 11 hectares in Umbria, and then managed to buy 76% of the paper from Lord Rothermere for a single pound, and a commitment to invest 25 million pounds.
1: One pound sold. That's the amount rumoured to be behind the nominal sum announced in the official statement. More than six months of negotiations and Alexander Lebedev is now the first Russian to own a leading UK newspaper.
4: Project Venus was complete. Jordi, for his service to father and son, was given 5% of the Evening Standard and its editorship, the first of his big newspaper jobs. When Alexander was asked whether Evgeny would be the paper's publisher, as was suspected, he said, I will wait and see. He has changed a lot in the past four to five years when he liked frolicking in the south of France. Evgeny didn't have to wait very long. Just shy of 30, he was put in charge of the standard. And when a year later, Alexander used the same Project Venus model to buy the Independent for one pound. With a commitment to invest 9.25 million pounds, he put Evgeny in charge of that too. And so, just like that, for the nominal price of two pounds, the Lebedevs owned two major British news titles.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, press freedom is a universal ideal, but its currency differs around the world. In Russia, People die for it. So there's not something we take lightly.
4: Evgeny, no longer a party boy, was now a serious person. It was a new guise for him and he needed a little practice.
7: And so my role with Evgeny was to rediscover a new language so that he could actually create the role that was being demanded of him but also that he was aligning himself with and approaching it from a very neo-paradigm as far as he was concerned so that he could be there in his own conviction doing his own thing but not feeling challenged by the patriarchy
4: this is Stuart appears he's a master of voice So called because he helps leaders like Margaret Thatcher, Benazir Bhutto, and Evgeny Lebedev find their voice on the stage.
7: But I believe at that time, he was beginning to awaken to another level of creative excellence. And a tremendous amount was being demanded of him. He'd just taken over the newspaper. He was wanting to shift the countenance of the Evening Standard. But at the same time, Evgeny is an extraordinarily private man immensely sensitive. You know, he has a pedigree of sensitivity which is really refined. And so being in the public domain is not an easy position for him. At least it was at that time.
4: Being a public person wasn't a natural fit for Evgeny. neither was running a newspaper. And so his father surrounded him with a close group of advisors. Soon, his private office grew to a staff composed of A social media person, a bodyguard, a fashion advisor, a social secretary, a media advisor, an editor, and a journalist. The job for his closest aides and editors could be grueling. Late night calls, sudden flights, unceasing requests for this or that, searching out people to attend his parties, for those people to have their photos taken with him. But the rewards for sticking it out could be substantial. Amul Rajan advised Evgeny for 18 months before Evgeny made him the editor of The Independent at 29. Geordie went on to edit Lord Rothermere's Mail on Sunday, then the Daily Mail. His successor at The Standard, Sarah Sands, went to the BBC's flagship Today programme. She was succeeded by George Osborne, who was David Cameron's Chancellor, and he was then succeeded by Emily Sheffield, Cameron's sister-in-law. While she was at the standard, Sarah Sands would ask then-Foreign Secretary William Hague to meet Evgeny for lunch. William Hague was advised that it would be a waste of his time. Evgeny may not have been desperately serious, one of his former staffers told me, but being part of the inner circle sounded like a lot of fun. We had to pitch ideas to Evgeny, he told me. We discussed him adopting an image of an oligarch meets Hunter S. Thompson or him going on Strictly Come Dancing. The job of the journalist was usually to arrange interviews to be done by Evgeny and then write up the interview. One person who occupied that role recalls arranging an interview with Evo Morales, then Bolivia's president, but having to scrap it when Evgeny realised that La Paz airport was at too high an altitude for his private jet to land. For the past three months, I have heard very different things about Evgeny. Some say he's serious, others frivolous, some say clever, others not so much. Stylish and vulgar, melancholy and a party boy. In many ways, Evgeny's a cipher. The closest I've come to understanding him is by talking to this man.
8: I found no substance to his interest beyond the interest of a collector of or oh, I could phrase it in such a um, Baroque phrasing a keeper of menageries, a collector of baubles.
4: This is Alexander Fisk Harrison, an old Etonian who wrote a book called Into the Arena about bullfighting. Since Into the Arena came
8: out, people approached me and uh, they approached me to learn more about the subject, usually. And people will ask me if, if I'm in Seville, which is where I usually go, or if I'm in Madrid or wherever, will I escort them to a bullfight? And if they're individuals of high net worth, their staff will reach out to me and a, a fee will be agreed.
4: Which is how he wound up getting a call from Evgeny's assistant asking to come meet Evgeny at his London home.
8: And you walk into a room where, you know, filled with books, but the books aren't read sort of thing, um, you, you start to see there's an appearance reality disjunction going on here that sets off a couple of alarm bells in the back of your head.
4: Which is why I'm taking a meander off-piste to tell you this ridiculous story, because it tells you about a man who likes to collect experiences and takes shortcuts to get them.
8: I, I had brought with me the cape and the muletta to give him an idea of how difficult it is, bullfighting. Everyone just thinks these guys wave this thing. If you just wave it, the bull's going to take you. That's it, you're gone. It's you know like a shark in the water. And he didn't seem that interested in that. So I was trying to convey to him, I think I cited the case of Antonio Bienvenida, who was a, the most famous matador of the 1970s. He was killed by one of these small cows on his own branch. And Evgeny was already talking about, yes, I want to get in the ring with, the, with these animals. I don't think he even understood the difference between a small one and a big one. And I was like, yeah, look, even serious matter was get killed by small cows. And he did start to listen a little bit more then. But there was a dilettantism in the air, shall we say.
4: After a few hours of Alexander Fisk Hamilton detailing how time-consuming, dangerous and difficult learning to be a matador was, he left Evgeny's home and waited for the call.
8: And I was told your services won't be needed.
4: And then, a few weeks later, independently of Fisk Harrison, the assistant arranged for Evgeny to visit a famous matador's bull ranch in Povedia, a four-hour drive east of Seville, for a bullfighting lesson.
8: The photographer, who's a very dear friend, sent me a text message saying, we're all out here waiting for your Russian friend to arrive. He hasn't arrived. Why don't you come in his place?
4: Evgeny sent his young assistant instead.
8: In the end, she got in the ring. The assistant got in the ring. Evgeny never showed up. And then they all drove to Seville. I think Evgeny took a private jet into Seville and joined us at dinner along with the bull breeder and various other entourage members of Lord Lebedev.
4: Part of that entourage was a journalist who wrote an article on bullfighting that would appear under Evgeny's byline in The Independent. The photo spread accompanying the article Evgeny claimed to have written featured him in a matadors costume. The Traja de Luces or the Suit of Lights, created just for him, just for this article.
8: They're a remarkable piece of kit, a matador suit of lights. And they have to fit exactly. And it's a very special and very expensive item.
4: So when you saw this photo, what was your reaction to it? As someone who has fought bulls and knows the significance. Am I allowed to swear? The
9: fucking
8: hubris of it. You can't do that. It's like turning up to Afghanistan. You know, it would be like turning up there wearing the uniform of a four star general and including that as your photo byline on your article. I mean, it breaks every notion of, um, not a phrase often said, but journalistic honor. Hola, buenas
6: tardes. Hola, buenas
3: tardes. ¿Es usted, Pedro? ¿Qué
5: tal?
4: We wondered who'd had made it for Evgeny, and so we called Pedro Algaba, perhaps the best Matador's tailor in the world, and showed him the photo to see if he recognized it. Algaba told us he's almost certain the suit is one of his, because of the shoulder pads and the tassels hanging off them. He said it would have been priced at 4,000 euros. Devoid from its tradition and culture, the outfit is merely a bauble. But behind the pomp, there was, as always, real power and real influence. Evgeny resuscitated the Evening Standards Theatre Awards, making them a big black-tie gala, joining forces with Anna Winter, inviting people like David Beckham, Naomi Campbell and Elton John, who was by then a Lebedev family friend.
8: I
6: thought it'd be great to shave the beard off of my dear friend Evgeny Lebedev. Hello, my name is Evgeny Lebedev uh, and my darling friend, Sir Elton John, is about to take my beard off for comic relief and I'm absolutely terrified what I look like underneath. So we're going to start the process and denude Mr. Lebedev
8: of his facial monstrosity. It's on.
4: But behind the scenes, it was still his father who controlled the purse strings, who still towered over him, who was the real draw. He invited him to speak at a Gorbachev charity gala dinner, providing him with a car and a chauffeur but it was Evgeny who moved the relationship along. As he once said, it's unreasonable to expect individuals to spend millions of pounds on newspapers and not have access to politicians. Boris Johnson's register of interests as mayor dates the relationship back to 2010, when they launched at Magdalen on Thule Street, London, under the crystal chandeliers of its maroon dining room. The restaurant, now closed, was described by food critic Jay Rayner as having the scent of the farmyard hanging sweetly in the air, meaty. Boris wrote to Evgeny afterwards that it was an excellent lunch and that he enjoyed discussing Evgeny's proposal for a Russian arts festival. The lunches continued, the friendship grew. By 2012, Evgeny and Boris Johnson were so close, they slept on the streets of London together, sharing a bottle of whiskey to raise money for an even standard anti-homelessness campaign.
7: God, well, does this city never sleep? It's unbelievable.
6: London, a city that never sleeps. It really doesn't. We've been told this evening it takes about seven days on average for people who are sleeping on the streets to start um, having mental problems, and you can see why you really can
4: It was in that same year, 2012, a few days before Boris was up for re-election as London mayor, that the Evening Standard ran this front page. Boris Johnson, the right choice for London.
2: I therefore officially declare Boris Johnson to be elected as the next mayor of London.
4: Then the trips to Italy began. The first was the Palazzo Terranova, a 17th-century villa nestled in the Umbrian hills, owned by Evgeny's father.
9: Yes, there is a castle and a palazzo. There are two magnificent properties in Umbria, and if you go to Umbria, which is a very, very famous Italian region. In the middle of Italy, nearby Tuscana. They love a lot the Russians.
4: This is Jacopo Jacoboni, an investigative journalist who wrote a book about the influence of Russian oligarchs in Italy called Oligarchy, with a chapter dedicated to Alexander Lebedev. The setting, one regular party goer Terranova Tomi, is out of this world. A sensational view. Every detail is looked after. There's music, dancing, fine wine, and fine food. But people, he continues, get the wrong idea about the parties. The reports and rumours of drugs and orgies are untrue. They're not wild and extravagant, he says, but always very intimate. The group is never greater than 20 people. Guests typically include people from the theatre and film worlds, but also politicians. He names Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson, George Osborne and David Cameron, along with Boris Johnson. The talk, he says, was about politics, but not explicitly so. No one ever said, he says, this should go in the paper.
9: Of course, one of the, the two properties, the Palazzo Terranova, has been the, the landscape of uh, at least two of Boris Johnson's visits in Umbria.
4: In a pattern that would repeat itself for the next five years, every October, Evgeny paid for Johnson's return flights and his two night stay. The persistent rumour about these parties in Umbria is that they were bugged. And used to collect kompromat on politicians. The allegation is rubbished by the two frequent attendees I spoke to, and has been rubbished by Evgeny himself. But given everything I've heard over the last couple of months, when it comes to Alexander, I'm really not so sure. The art of kompromat is something KGB officers practised extensively. Even Alexander himself was subjected to it in 2012. A now-defunct Russian web journal published a secretly recorded video of Alexander in bed with different women, Ukrainian prostitutes, on multiple occasions. As he enjoyed his time with the women, his friend Elton John's classic hits Candle in the Wind and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road played in the background. Alexander said the footage was part of an FSP plot to harass him. He said he was done with Russia. His focus shifted to entertaining British politicians instead. In April 2018, Boris Johnson, by now Foreign Secretary, visited Terranova alone, leaving even his two close protection officers behind. He arrived at the local airport two days later, without any luggage, looking like it slept in his clothes. One fellow passenger thought the British foreign secretary was going to be sick on the tarmac.
9: The Italian intelligence was well aware of the trip of Boris Johnson. So this is a very worrying scenario because not just a foreign minister of an allied country comes here in the house of uh, a former KGB spy. Not just this, but the Italian intel knows these very well and properly it informs the Italian government. And so the Italian government is well, well aware of this uh, dangerous trip of Boris Johnson.
4: Johnson, Italian intelligence agents saw, had put himself in a compromising situation.
9: Selling a little or a lot?
0: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
7: The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. The people who bet against Britain are going to lose their shirts because we're going to restore trust in our democracy.
4: It's December 2019, the day after Boris Johnson is elected prime minister. He goes to one of the Lebedev's famous vodka and caviar parties at the stuccoed mansion overlooking Regent's Park in honour of Alexander's 60th birthday. Once again, politicians mixed with film stars and millionaires. One of Evgeny's former media advisors says, there was an amazing density of famous people. It was crazy, bizarre. A lot of booze, drinking till dawn. The politicians were mainly downstairs and left earlier. Tony Blair threw a back door before the official party even started. But Boris Johnson stayed late with the early morning crowd. It was a triumphant moment for both Boris and the Lebedevs, whose newspapers had for years campaigned in support of him, for mayor, as foreign secretary, for prime minister. And it seemed to be appreciated.
5: Noble Lords, for every one of us it is a moving moment when we join this house. When we promise to be faithful, bear true allegiance, we know the pledge we make.
4: A year and a half into Boris's premiership, Evgeny gives his maiden speech to the House of Lords.
5: We're making a vow to maintain this country's freedoms and to keep our institutions strong. We're offering diligence and independence as we accept our duties as legislators. We're taking our place in the long line of those who have defended the values of our nation.
4: The man A Tish Tassir barely remembered at the party in Altop 15 years ago has acquired his finest bauble yet. He gave his speech via video link. He appeared in a black jacket, black shirt, and black tie, his signature thick black beard perfectly trimmed, full bookshelves behind him. Evgeny wanted his title to include both Richmond upon Thames, where he keeps that house, a grand home he once joked was named after him, and Moscow. Where he was born. As is customary, the College of Arms asked the Russian government for its approval of the Moscow part. It wasn't granted. And so Evgeny was sent to Siberia. He became Baron Lebedev of Hampton in the London Borough of Richmond upon Thames and of Siberia in the Russian Federation. Since his maiden speech, Evgeny has made no other contribution, spoken or written, to the House. And if we're really honest, in a way, none of this is new. Prime Ministers have long used their power to send supporters to the Lords.
10: I mean, it would be surprising, I think, if um, uh, he played a large part in the work of the House of Lords. It would surprise me greatly.
4: This is Lord Lexton. An active Conservative peer and the Carlton Club's official historian who was sent to the Lords by David Cameron.
10: It tends to be the case that when peerages are awarded in this particular manner, out of recognition in part to a person's contribution to the country, maybe, but in larger part because of the money that they have spent. Um, in ways that um, advance the interests of those at the centre of our affairs who profit from them. The closer the connection, in other words, between um, the rendering of service by financial contributions to the Tory party or in ways similar to it, the more likely it is that the individual will be seen, but rarely, in the Chamber of the House of Lords. There is nothing new about that as a feature of British political life. It goes goes back to the 19th 19th century.
4: The Lords has grown a bit since then. It's now got around 800 members. It's the second largest legislative chamber behind the 3,000 or so member Chinese National People's Congress. And what does a seat in the Lords give you beyond the title? By putting on that crimson robe, Evgeny gets a say over this country's laws for life. He acquires yet more status, he gets to walk through the so-called corridors of power and gains gravitas, from party boy to peer, in 15 years. But here's the thing. Evgeny sits in the Lords as a crossbencher, unaffiliated to a political party, and neither he nor his father have officially donated money to the Conservatives or to Boris Johnson. So it's not your classic case of patronage. Apparently, they're just friends.
10: Well, Mr. Johnson doesn't care about very much. Um, He is perfectly content uh, to see and to promote and undertake himself um, in the curious, blithe and brazen way in which he uh, conducts um, his life. Uh, So it is part of the way in which he treats the world. He is an amiable, jolly person who likes to do what he can for friends. And this would be one thing. And it wouldn't trouble him in the least because his conscience is not a very deep and marked feature of his personality.
4: Johnson may not care, but should the rest of us? I think so. Because there was something different about Evgeny's nomination something deeply concerning. The House of Lords Appointments Commission, which is a group of cross-party peers that can vet but not veto nominees, received Evgeny's name at the start of 2020. As part of its assessment, the Commission can go to any government department. In Evgeny's case, they went to the intelligence agencies. On 17th of March 2020, in Committee Room 2, between 1 and 3 p.m., the commissioners met to review Evgeny's vetting report. The brief was that Evgeny was a potential security risk because of his father's KGB past. The commissioners wrote to the prime minister to express their concerns and asked him to reconsider Evgeny's nomination and recommended an alternative nominee. And then, something interesting happened. Two days later, Horace Johnson met with Lebedev Holdings, which owns the Evening Standard and is controlled by Evgeny, at his private flat in Downing Street. And sometime after, Evgeny's name came back to the Commission as a fait accompli. When I submitted a Freedom of Information request for more details on this meeting, the Cabinet Office said it holds no information on attendees or what they discussed. The meeting, it said, was social. I sent FOI requests to the Commission, the Met, the Home Office, the Foreign Office, the Electoral Commission, to anybody that would have had any role at all in Evgeny's vetting process. If a reply came back at all, it was late and usually heavily redacted. What does this tell me about Britain, one of the oldest parliamentary systems, a so-called shining beacon of democracy, and I can't find out why a man who has been flagged as a security risk has been given a seat in the upper chamber of parliament, a place where people have real power and control over our lives. It's only through a report in The Guardian, a source on the commission, one of its former chairs, and some documents gleaned through an FOI that we know his appointment raised suspicion. And so reluctantly, the commissioners signed off on Evgeny's appointment with a caveat. In their confirmation letter, they called on Boris Johnson to examine Russian influence in the Lords, which was highlighted in a report by a parliamentary committee that oversees the intelligence agencies and that, with much delay, was released the same month that Evgeny's name was published as a nominated
2: peer. Our report covered the whole sphere of Russian potential Russian state activity. And that included cyber. It included possible interference in elections or referendums by bots or or, or by deliberate Mm. interference. It covered uh, Russia's intelligence activities, not just in the United Kingdom, but amongst our near neighbors and partners. I'm Dominic Grieve. Uh, I'm a barrister. Uh, Between 1997 and 2019, I was the Member of Parliament For Beaconsfield, and I was the Attorney General from 2010 to 2014 in the administration of David Cameron uh, in government, and from 2015 to 2019, I was the Chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament.
4: There's a section in the report um, called Welcoming Oligarchs, Um, and the word welcoming is is significant. Who, I mean, who in London, who are we talking about when we say people are welcoming these oligarchs?
2: The welcome started with the fact that back in the 1990s, at a time when the Iron Curtain had broken down, the UK government um, wanted to attract inward investment. And as a consequence, it had a UK's investor visa scheme, which was designed to facilitate people with large amounts of money coming and settling and investing and working in this country, which I have to say is a perfectly legitimate activity. But the consequence was the inrush of a large amount of money for investment purposes into this country, which had, in some cases, uh, unexplained origins. Uh, And that immediately raises uh, the risk that, in fact, although the people may be wishing to invest here and indeed coming here because they like our rule of law, they like our judicial system, they like our education system for their children. All legitimate things. The other explanation may be that they thought London was a very good place to launder their money. And the question then is to what extent those activities and their prior business activities in Russia lead them to be susceptible either to the furtherance of activities that we would regard as improper in criminal terms, uh, or alternatively, actually acting as agents of influence for the Russian government, which, and this was quite clear, from our inquiry, sees absolutely no distinction between Mm. state activity and commercial activity by its citizens, uh, because it will see its citizens, wherever they may be in the world, as potential state agents for furthering Russian influence.
4: Now, the, the Lord's features in the report, could I ask you to say what your...
2: We noted that it was a number of members of the House of Lords had business links interests to Russia all worked directly for major Russian companies linked to the Russian state and that these relationships, in our view, needed to be very carefully scrutinized given the potential for the Russian state to exploit them.
4: Yes, okay, but in that list of nominations, I know the report doesn't reference anyone directly um, and certainly not this person, but one of the nominees was Evgeny Lebedev, who is a British citizen, was born in Russia, his father's Russian, his father was a KGB officer in London in the late 80s. Given the work you've done and and what you've been discussing, what, what do you make of that nomination? Did it surprise you or should should we be concerned?
2: I can't and won't comment for is- uh, uh, the on this, I'm afraid. It, 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 it's, it's, we were very careful in our report to deal with generic issues and mm. not with personalities.
4: So far, so circumspect. But one unredacted report we do have is quite explicit about Alexander.
9: We have an assessment of the Italian counter a written document which ended in the the desks of the then uh, uh, Giuseppe Conte government. And uh, this document assesses that uh, the Alexander Liebedev operations were not just real estate, but they were, well, both, the the intel rights, literally, espionage operations.
4: This is Jacopo Jacoboni again, the investigative journalist for La Stampa newspaper. Jacopo shared with me an intelligence report into the activities of Russian oligarchs in Italy. What what else does it say about Alexander Lebedev? How does it describe his relationship with the Kremlin, for example?
9: One of the other important things the, the document states is that Alexander Lebedev is currently very close to the Kremlin, Because one of the point is that uh, in the narrative of the Lebedevs, especially of uh, Alexander, is pretending to be, I don't know if to say, some sort of Kremlin opponents, but in any case, figure uh, very uh, distant from from the the Putin circle. What the report says instead is that Alexander uh, remained very close to the Kremlin, also as a banker, his second life. And this is a very important point. And another, another point, uh, the Italian intel is uh, convinced that uh, Alexander Lebedev has an important role in the relationship between Russia and Italy, uh, especially through energy and Gazprom operations in Italy.
4: The Italian intelligence report claims, in summary, that Alexander, the man British politicians visit in Umbria, where Tony Blair, for example, went for a couple of days as recently as August 2020, is close to the Kremlin and involved in espionage operations. But in a way, we never really needed a secret report to tell us this. If you look back over the editorials that appear under Evgeny's bylines in their newspapers or the interviews he gave to the British press, you can see his stance to Putin soften quite markedly after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014.
6: I think if sanctions were to go any further, I think the city of London and London, London's economy, would have been affected. Britain
4: must make Vladimir Putin an ally, an article under Evgeny's byline declared in The Independent. I can see the need for sanctions, he told the Moscow Times, but I'm not sure that sanctions are achieving the result they were supposed to achieve. Meanwhile, Alexander hosted a conference in Crimea where he owns property called Open Your Eyes. As we now know, Putin didn't stop at Crimea. He's now at war with Ukraine. The British government has responded with threats of sanctions against oligarchs, and companies linked to the Kremlin.
7: And now the UK and our allies will begin, begin to impose the sanctions on Russia that we have already prepared, using the new and unprecedented powers granted by this House to sanction Russian individuals and entities of strategic importance to the Kremlin.
2: We've just introduced new sanctions legislation, which is the toughest we've ever had against Russia. That enables us not to just target companies with direct effect on Ukraine, but anybody or any company that has a bearing on the Russian state. And that would seriously destabilise the Russian economy.
4: But Londongrad now finds itself in a fix. Russians accused of financial crime with Kremlin links own some of its most expensive property. Kremlin link companies are on the London Stock Exchange, including Gazprom. It was just two days after Germany halted a major Gazprom pipeline into Europe that Russia declared war on Ukraine. And oligarchs fund Britain's political parties. While she was talking tough on sanctions, a photo emerged of Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, and other senior Tory politicians standing next to the wife of Russia's former Finance Minister, Lubov Chernukhin, who has donated around £2 million to the Conservatives over the past decade. Sanctions won't just harm the oligarchs, but all the people who feed off them, the lawyers, accountants, politicians, and journalists. In any case, Lord Lebedev is safe in his seat. He has disposed of a large chunk of the assets that took him there, selling a third of his newspapers to a Saudi Arabian national who fronts for Faisal bin Salman al-Saud, brother to the Crown Prince, a representative of the next wave of money crashing on London. So these two major British news titles are now owned by a Russian oligarch and a Saudi prince. And remember that trip Boris took to Umbria in April 2018, the one where he appeared at the airport looking hungover? On that trip, I've been told Alexander Lebedev Told the then foreign secretary that he could act as a back channel between Boris and Putin over the Skripal poisoning crisis from a few weeks earlier. The plan, which hasn't been reported before and which the Foreign Office, Downing Street, and Alexander declined to comment on when I put it to them, was shelved by Boris's officials. From the start, it's been a costume drama, from a midsummer Russian fantasy in white tie to a House of Lords ordination in red robes. And are we really to think this is still just a Tatler story, an inconsequential coincidence of parties, the accidental rise of a socialite? Are we really to believe that the titles, the papers, the peerage, Baron Lebedev of Hampton in the London Borough of Richmond upon Thames and of Siberia and the Russian Federation, that all that comes without influence?
1: I'm in Poland now, witnessing
4: the result of Russia's war on Ukraine. I've spoken to mothers, grandmothers and children who fled their homes to get here, some driving for two days, seeing dead bodies and burnt tanks along the way. One described Putin as an international terrorist. Another, a 65-year-old woman clutching a toothbrush, said she hopes he'll burn in hell forever. It seems a million miles from London, but here, on the Poland-Ukraine border, I can see the effects of letting Russian money wash through the city over years and years, its power and influence building and building. Evgeny first described Russia's war on Ukraine as a tragedy for people of Ukraine and Russia. But just two days later, his equivocating softened. In a letter on the Evening Standard's front page, he pleaded with Putin to negotiate an end to the war. Evgeny is feeling the pressure to pick a side before it is picked for him. This week's Slow Newscast was presented and reported by me, Paul Caruana Galizia. It was produced by Gemma Newby. Sound design was by Carla Patella and our editor was Kerry Thomas.
7: We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.